welcome to The Race to the White House, where we cover everything you need to know about the 2016 US election. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next 27 days as we count down to November 8. Can you believe it? Less than a month to go. And, of course, a fun fact for you, 27 was the average donation in dollars that Bernie Sanders received from his supporters. Uh, Joining me in the studio now to discuss the second US presidential debate and everything you need to know from the campaign trail, uh, our regular guest, Tom Switzer. Welcome, Tom. G'day, Emma. Great to be here. And Brendan O'Connor. Hi, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again. And joining us all the way from the southeastern US state of Virginia via Skype is our special guest, Dr. Nicole Hemmer. How are you going, Nicole? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, So Nicole is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Miller Center and a research associate at the US Study Center. Her new book, Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, depicts a history of conservative media in the US. Nicole is, of course, no stranger to podcast land either. She hosts and is the producer of Past Present, a podcast that brings together three historians to debate the latest news in politics and culture. Uh, So, Nicole, we're really glad that you're here and you can join us this week. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. And what a week it has been. Uh, Sunday, US time kicked off the second presidential debate, the town hall style clash between Trump and Clinton, uh, came just days after a video of Trump was leaked making lewd remarks about the treatment of women. Uh, Trump went into the second debate with his campaign teetering and sought to hit back at the Clintons when faced with the accusations over his own historic comments about groping women. Donald Trump then turned the conversation back into an attack on Bill Clinton's past sexual improprieties. Uh, So this became an early focus of the debate, but the two candidates did manage to also cover healthcare, tax reform and foreign relations. Uh, So the debate has been referred to by some as the most vicious political debate in American history, and it was certainly disjointed, uncivil, sometimes substantive and no doubt historic. Uh, So Nicole, were audiences around the world watching two radically different debates take place on the same stage on Sunday night. They were. Normally, when it comes to these general election debates, both sides are talking to the same audience. They're reaching out to undecideds, to those middle voters. And that's why the audience is stacked with undecided voters. But those aren't the voters that Donald Trump was talking to. Hillary Clinton was gave a, an average, a, a normal um, performance for a town hall debate, reaching out to that particular group. But Donald Trump was speaking to his base. And that's good for getting the energy up with his base. It helps him shore up his position within the Republican Party. But the problem with speaking to his base is that when he speaks to his base, he alienates just about everyone else. So the second presidential debate, it's not just about shoring up your base, but offering something to undecided voters as well. So uh, who came out on top here, Brendan? Well... Nikki's absolutely right that Donald Trump came out with, uh, I'm not going to be shackled by the party uh, approach to the debate. It was uh, emotionally, the tension in the room just seemed enormous. Bill Clinton, when he walked in, uh, looked sheepish and sort of, uh, you know, as though he'd put the weight of the world on his wife's shoulders, which to some degree he had uh, this incredible stunt that Trump pulled of uh, bringing these accusers of both Bill and Hillary Clinton to the debate as guests, having a press conference pretty shortly before the debate, which Hillary Clinton must have been aware of. So the emotional tension in the room was enormous. And Hillary Clinton was calm 
Um, maybe not as um, dynamic in performance as the first debate, but just weathered the storm of all of these allegations that have been flying around. Donald Trump, on the other hand, more energized than in the first debate, uh, incoherent at times again on policy, but someone who showed clearly he wasn't going to resign. I mean, in a, maybe a different political system, the party would have forced this candidate out of the race. He's not... They're not simply kind of lewd comments there. He's, he's bragging about illegal sexual harassment uh, mm-hmm. of women. So this is, this is you know, the, why this has been taken so seriously is quite rightly so. So an incredible environment that that debate occurred within. Trump did an outstandingly good job of solidifying his base. But as Nikki and Brendan have suggested, to win elections, you need to win over independence college-educated Republicans, in his case, especially women. And I suspect that uh, given the fallout from the tapes uh, of his lewd remarks about women in 2005, uh, it's almost irreparable. He's he's damaged goods in many respects. Uh, He went into this debate with his tail between his legs. Uh, He was bleeding credibility as if from an open wound. And, you know, in fairness to Trump, I think he surpassed expectations, but they were from a very low (laughs) bar. And ultimately, it probably doesn't matter. Uh, He's a dead man walking. So for 24 hours after the 2005 Access Hollywood tape was released, where Trump makes offensive comments about women, uh, Trump then used Twitter to announce, I will never drop out of the race, um, will never let my supporters down, hashtag MAGA, and that's make America great again. Uh, Trump seems to be tearing the GOP mm. in two. Republicans like uh, Senator John McCain has jumped off the Trump train, as well as uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan, who said earlier this week that he would no longer defend um, or campaign for Trump. So Trump has seen, I think, many defections from fellow Republicans over the past few days. Uh, is Trump turning himself into a wedge issue for the Republican Party? Well, Nikki, you should go ahead at this. You're an expert on American conservatism. I've got plenty to say, but uh, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's a strange thing to have a candidate be a wedge issue. It's probably something we haven't seen since 1964 when Barry Goldwater really emphasize the divisions within the Republican Party between the conservatives and the moderates and liberals. With Donald Trump, he is not only a wedge issue like Goldwater, but because he has no loyalty to the Republican Party, he's actually driving a bigger wedge. He had like three dozen office holders come out against him in about a 24-hour period. And that's pretty dramatic and and if not unprecedented, then at an even bigger scale than we saw even in 1964 with Goldwater and his historic loss against Johnson. The question that really remains from all of this is, is this going to be traumatic to the Republican Party, both in the congressional races, the House races particularly, and is the party's credibility going to be in sh- sort of shredded by ultimately he is the standard bearer of the party. He's the nominee of the party this year. So already people like Paul Ryan are in damage control. Uh, they want to be the future of the party. They want to have some credibility to say, look, we didn't go all the way with supporting Trump. We put some distance between ourselves and Trump. So 
Tom, I'm I'm fascinated to think about what will remain of the Republican Party after this election. I don't think mm. it's the end of the Republican Party. Mm. I don't think it's likely to immediately fracture. Uh, it's not going to die as a party. That's one of the two American uh, major parties. But it's going to be in a state of turmoil, and it's going to have to ask itself some pretty serious and questions. And as Nicole suggested, 1964 was a pretty bad time for the Republican Party. They were wiped out by LBJ. I actually think this crisis that the Republican Party is facing is the worst crisis, not since 64, since 74. If you go back to August 74, you had Nixon's mm-hmm. resignation, and that led to a huge landslide defeat for congressional Republicans at the midterm elections a few months later. And many pundits today think that Trump's scandal will presage a, a big Republican loss on November 8. But I think there are big differences between 74 and today. I think. You know, Nixon always said he wasn't a quitter, but ultimately, you know, when Barry Goldwater, the conscience of American conservatism, called on him to resign, he resigned almost immediately. When Goldwater's successor, John McCain, who has the Arizona Senate seat, said that he withdrew support from uh, Donald Trump, uh, Trump, it didn't matter a thing to Trump, but Trump does care little for the party or the nation. And there's another crucial difference too between then and now. Uh, the Republicans having suffered humiliating losses in both 74, those midterm elections, and the 76 election to Jimmy Carter, they regrouped and rallied around Ronald Reagan. And the rest is history. You had three elections on the trot. You had uh, an ideological realignment of the American political landscape for the next two to three decades. In this case, the Republican Party is in the midst of a civil war. It's leaderless. Uh, it's uh, riven by factionalism. Uh, it's incapable of philosophical self-reflection. And it's not altogether clear what will replace uh, the Trump at the end of all this. It, we're in a real um, unprecedented era. If I could just build off of, of Tom's point here, the Republican Party is in transition essentially from being a party of ideas to a coalition of interests. I don't think there's going to be necessarily a strictly conservative Republican mm. Party at the end of all of this, that it is going to be a coalition of nationalists and populists and conservatives organized around a few shared policy preferences. And this is the transformation that we're going through right now and the fighting that we're seeing. Nicole, I was going to say, in an article you wrote earlier this week for you, US News. I think you summed it up perfectly when you you said that Trump was both the captain and the iceberg. Um, Is this what it looks like when a party is falling apart? Yes, I think so. So in this case, the GOP is the Titanic and Trump is both captain and iceberg. And that's an unusual position for someone to be in, to be both the person who is steering the ship as the de facto leader of the party as the presidential nominee, but also to be the person who is really destroying it. And because Trump is how he is, it's essentially a situation where he's saying the ship goes down with the captain. If I'm going down, I'm bringing you all down with me. And poor Paul Ryan is now trying to get as many members of Congress onto the life rafts as he can um, before they plunge into the waters on November 8th. But uh, does the Republican Party turn back to that report written after Mitt Romney's loss and say, Mm. look, we cannot win uh, with a sort of white male maximization vote strategy. Uh, We have to be a party that accepts that America is getting a much greater number of Latino voters, that America is not just uh, a Protestant white society, uh, that it's a society where the if you don't embrace uh, all sorts of new immigrant groupings, you're going to be a minority party uh, for a considerably long period of time because the memories of uh, these negative 
commentary by Trump about immigrants, about Hispanics, about Muslims, about a range of people who've come to the United States more recently are just going to linger for quite a long time. And there needs to be a pretty dramatic correction to bring those people on side. I guess my question is, how do they do that? Because they tried to do that in 2012. They even shifted the rules of the primaries to help that mm. happen. <laughs> and there is a good 25 to 30 percent of the Republican base who does not want that and will not will not put up with it. Yeah, and and so is, that's is, that's exactly, exactly right. But there's also, it seems to me, an irreconcilable difference between the conservative free market pro-business wing of mm-hmm. the party and the more populist nativist anti-immigrant segment of the party. And this is what Trump has shown here. He, 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 in many respects, represents those far-right, anti-immigration, nativist parties, economic nationalist parties uh, that are uh, threatening established parties all across Europe. But it's more chaotic than this, that if you look at Paul Ryan's conference call that was made on Monday, the people who believe that the system can some way achieve goals, uh, you know, the, those who have taken leadership positions like Ryan within the party, it's the Tea Party types or what, you know, the, say the New York Times would call the conservatives within the party are saying, let's stick with Trump. And some of those people want to just see the system sort of uh, blown up, uh, sort of, you know, and something replace a totally unrealistic idea or have these kind of radical kind of market views that, you know, the financial collapse should have just been allowed to wipe out the banks and you would start again. So the actual people within the uh, House of Representatives who are more drawn to Trump are actually people who don't always hold the same sort of uh, political views as him or on economic policy, quite different views. So it is a real mess uh, to some extent about where the alliances are here um, between those who really are establishmentarian politicians and those who just uh, sprout a whole range of possible ideas that you know have never been tested and un- unlikely to work. Right. Well, it's worth noting that Paul Ryan is less popular in the Republican Party than Donald Trump is. So it's going to be a, a bloody battle, however it goes. The Race for the White House, a U.S. election podcast for the non-American. So for the most part, the second presidential nominee debate, both candidates attacked each other's characters and their temperament. Um, for me, it was at times depressing to watch. But what were the moments where Hillary or Donald performed at their best in the debate? I think what's interesting about the debate was that Hillary Clinton put on the record a range of things about foreign policy to do with maybe being more interventionist in Syria, uh, a tough line on Russia, a very tough line on Putin, and uh, a suggestion that she would consider arming the Kurds of northern Iraq, who, uh, you know, and border into, of course, Turkey, which uh, would have taken real note at that comment. So what is often really interesting about these debates is the things that they give us a window into the future. And Obama in 08, two things that stick with me that he said on the campaign trail was he would negotiate with Iran. Uh, and that he was not afraid to pursue al-Qaeda into Pakistan, and that might be bombing in Pakistani territory to get bin Laden and Mm -hmm. to uh, get al-Qaeda operatives. So uh, given the very strong likelihood of Hillary Clinton as the candidate, I think some of 
you know, the things she's putting on the record need to be scrutinized uh, a lot more than the debate like that gave the opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a smart point, especially because the aftermath of the debate involved very little pouring over of policy. It was very much about posturing and emotion and attitude more so than it was about actual substantive policy. And that reflects really the the whole of the election. Um, so it's not surprising. But I do think you're right, Brendan, that getting those things on the record creates something creates essentially campaign promises that Clinton will be held to. Uh, political scientists have shown that candidates really are held to the promises they make on the campaign trail. So it will be it will be an important record to look back at a year from now. Now, for months, Trump's uh, supporters have been chanting lock her up at rallies and that uh, hashtag has been trending on social media channels as well. So in the second debate, Trump went one step further and promised to do just that. Some would say this is not only an attack on Clinton, but uh, on the rule of law as well. As far as I know, no presidential nominee has ever vowed to use the office to imprison their opponent. So was this line by Trump an ill thought out quip or a sign of what he's capable of? Well, it's in keeping with, I think, his idea of how a president's power works, that Trump has this idea that a president can do things uh, by their sheer will and their popularity that are jailing uh, an opponent. This is not the case. A special prosecutor is supposed to be put in place by the attorney general, not by the president. The president does not have the direct power to jail anyone. Uh, they can pardon someone, but they cannot put someone directly in jail. He's also made the case that he will fix the tax loopholes almost seemingly overnight and the healthcare system. Now, those are really congressional issues. The Congress has to pass tax laws. The Congress passes health care reform laws. So he has a fundamental lack of understanding of how the Constitution works and the political process of the United States works. And this is why he's, I think, sensibly sort of thought of as a populist against running against someone who is a, a great believer in using the system for maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe not perfectly and uh, with lots of uh, baggage in terms of uh, how she's used the system, Hillary Clinton. But we've got a believer in the process of liberal democracy uh, with all its failings and weaknesses and messiness, the sausage-making processes, as Hillary Clinton called it in one of her uh, speeches released by WikiLeaks. And we've got Donald Trump, someone who believes that you can click your fingers like Superman and change, uh, you know, who's in jail or what policies the United States has. I think, too, it was a deliberate statement. I mean, Trump has been sort of circling around or hinting at several different threats over the past several months, including bringing up um, Bill Clinton's sexual misconduct, including, you know, chanting back, lock her up, but never really quite going there. And I think he made a an intentional decision on Sunday night to go there. And going there is a really big deal because, as Brendan said, this is simply not within the constitutional powers of the presidency. I do wonder, I was talking with a reporter earlier this week about this issue of, you know, is this a just an unprecedented statement or is it something in keeping with the larger Republican Party? And there has been over the past 25 years, this move towards the criminalization of the opposition. We've seen it with impeachment and investigations. <clears throat> there have already been calls for the impeachment of Hillary Clinton, and she's not even in office yet. And so it is a difference of kind to actually say you will jail your opponent. Um, but I do think that it's building on this broader sentiment or this broader tradition within the Republican Party to criminalize their opposition. 
The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. Trump set up a press conference before the debate with three women who have accused former President Bill Clinton of rape and sexual harassment. Uh, The women were also seen in the audience in the town hall presidential debate between Trump and Hillary Clinton, where they were joined by a sexual assault survivor whose suspected attacker Hillary Clinton actually represented as a public defender when she was 27 years old. Uh, So the the four women, Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Wiley and Kathy Shelton, expressed their support for Trump and their anger towards the Clintons while speaking to the media uh, before the debate started. So did these women agree to be used as political pawns in Trump's run for the White House? And, and do you think their presence at the debate was intended to throw Hillary off? They definitely had agency. They agreed to be there. And I think that they understood how they were going to be used while they were there. And it it certainly was meant to both throw Clinton off, but also to deflect from the, the problems that Trump is having with his own sexual harassment, sexual misconduct um, that came out of the tape. I mean, for mine, I thought it was fairly grotesque and had little to do with Hillary Clinton herself. But I am sure there will be some disagreement on that. I mean, that one of the issues with these cases that goes back to the Paula Jones case is that foundations, conservative foundations, conservative media organizations have been paying for these individuals' flights, uh, been paying for their appearances at various kind of uh, hearings in the past. And, uh, and this occurred uh, in terms of the event on Sunday before the debate. So it's got the sense that there is a bit of a web of people who uh, are sort of trawling uh, to bring these things to light. And it does have a kind of Jerry Springer sort of element <laughs> to it <laughs> that it, it, it attempted to muddy yeah. the waters. It, it, Trump's clear attempt was to say, okay, um, what I've said is embarrassing, it's illegal, as I said before, but I am going to counteract that uh, with this, all of these allegations against Bill Clinton, uh, as, as horrible as many of them sound, they haven't led to a conviction. Uh, and this really unfortunate case of a 12-year-old girl uh, being raped, and this woman is going to relive this and tell us about the story that most of us are unaware of. This is uh, taking things that should be dealt with in the courts and maybe in counselling mm. into the public arena in a way that is just unnecessary, I largely think. And I don't think it really leads to us having any great insight into candidates uh, to deal with, uh, you know, people's private and sort of, uh, and maybe and people's court cases uh, in this way. And it, it reflects a very different political culture. I've written a little bit about this. this is a kind of, you know, the Oprah Winfrey, Jerry Springer culture of mm. people putting out sort of emotional pain and hurt into the public arena uh, where these are probably more sensibly dealt with in other realms. If there are, you know, still court cases to be fought on these issues, uh, that's the realm where they should be uh, discussed, not in the sort of, uh, you know, hothouse environment of a media event just before a very, very important uh, presidential debate. The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American.
You're listening to The Race to the White House on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to theconversation.com or your favourite podcast app and look for The Race to the White House. I'm here with Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor and special guest Nicole Hemmer is uh, joining us via Skype. We've just been discussing the fiery second presidential debate, two down and one to go. Uh, But now I want to turn to a topic that has been overshadowed this week by the steady flow of Trump bombshells, and that is WikiLeaks. Uh, So the website WikiLeaks dropped its third instalment of hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, the chairman John Podesta on Tuesday US time, uh, providing an inside look into the campaign's discussions over everything from her private email server uh, to Donald Trump, of course. Uh, So the latest release of over 1,000 new emails includes one from Clinton's confidant near attendant in August of 2015, suggesting that uh, the candidate turn her email server over to a third party which was well and truly after the Justice Department had initiated investigation. Uh, so some emails are obviously less damaging. For example, a longtime advisor who worked on Clinton's 2008 campaign described the former Secretary of State as being obsessed with Jeb Bush. I don't know if we all knew that already, but... Highly revelation. (laughs) Damaging. The most potentially problematic release so far are in the initial dispatch, which identified excerpts from Clinton's paid speeches, including one in which she expressed support for um, hemispheric open trade zone and open borders. And this is obviously at odds with her current campaign position um, where she's been critical of trade agreements. So uh, today Trump came out on Twitter um, in response to the latest October surprise and said, I hope people are looking at the disgraceful behaviour of Hillary Clinton as exposed by WikiLeaks. She is unfit to run. Uh, So why is nobody really paying attention to these stories? Well, they've been overshadowed by the Donald Trump tape. I mean, there are other WikiLeaks that have been dumped in the last, uh, on Tuesday American time, uh, emails showing that uh, the State Department was giving preference or special attention to FOB, it's Friends of Bill, after the uh, Haiti earthquake. Donna Brazil, who was a, a leading uh, Gore supporter and an advisor, uh, tipping the now a CNN commentator, tipping the Clinton campaign about a CNN town hall question on the death penalty. I don't think those things are huge drums, although Bernie Sanders supporters would be probably irate about the second one. I think the thing that really would upset the Bernie Sanders supporters, the folks on the left of the Democratic Party, was that dump uh, that you just mentioned over the weekend that was completely overshadowed by the uh, Donald uh, Trump uh, tape. I mean, this was showing that Clinton, in the months after she was Secretary of State, doing the rounds of the big money speaking circuit, um, she was earning something like uh, $4 million in two years, according to disclosure reports. And she was giving speeches to various banks like Goldman Sachs, saying that, uh, you know, there's a real bias against people like you who have been successful or have had complicated lives, mm. that you need Wall Street insiders to fix Wall Street, that I take a public position and a private position. And then this one, that we should have open borders and open markets. Now, that kind of language uh, just reaffirms those widespread doubts on the left of the Democratic Party, uh, that she's not one of them, that she's a part of the establishment, that she's close to Wall Street. And my sense is that if these WikiLeaks uh, documents were released during the Democratic primaries, it would have done her a lot of damage, more damage then than it's doing now. Indeed. I'd agree with that entirely. I mean, she is giving us... uh a peek into things that I think many of us who follow her very closely would not be surprised at at all. 
the sense that it's a messy process politics. She describes it as, uh, you know, in that classic way, was it Bismarck who said the you know, you don't want to know the inside of the sausage uh, when you're eating it. Uh, that's what politics is about. It's, uh, it's a complicated compromising game. And that's one of her big problems. She has been in public life uh, as, you know, first lady since 1993. 25 uh, she, years, not 30 years as Trump yeah, is saying. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, and she's, you know, very heavily involved in the governorship of, of Bill Clinton from the late 70s onwards. So mm-hmm. in Arkansas. So she's, of course, going to be uh, compromised in sort of a hundred different ways through various policies she's been involved in, various arguments that she's taken, positions that are different, particularly on trade. Uh, but that's the nature of being involved as a politician for that long. And the lack of mature capacity uh, for the media and for people with voters in many regards to say, look, if you're in public life for that long, you're not going to have uh, an uncomplicated record has been one of, I think, one of the slightly disappointing parts of this year. Uh, the way that more public service is a fault rather than seen as, well, at least she's stuck at it uh, to some extent. Yeah. But if you're an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders and, and they have a lot of supporters in the Democratic Party and they take a more ideological view about the financial industry, what do they say about a candidate who, who says in public that she wants to punish banks with more regulation, but in private says she really likes them. I mean, this is this is my point. This just reaffirms those widespread doubts about her. And she, although I think she doesn't need them as much now after the last week, but she does need the Democrat Sanders supporters to turn out on election day. Will they be so enthusiastic now? They probably won't be terribly enthusiastic, but I don't know how enthusiastic they were to begin with. I agree with Brendan that this, for those of us who have followed Hillary Clinton, these tape, these emails basically show her as a the moderate technocrat that we knew that she was, someone who would draw the finance industry into the process of regulation. She would still regulate, but she would bring bankers actually into it, which is something that, of course, uh, Warren and Sanders would want nothing to do with. But it's it's unsurprising. And I think that if not just if it had happened at a different time, but if it had happened in a different campaign, one that didn't have so much news that was constantly churning, then something like this could build into something very damaging. But I think as it is, because there are no real bombshells in here, like big bombshells, that it's really going to have trouble penetrating everything else that's going on. So Clinton's campaign has not confirmed or denied the authenticity of the messages. But, They're too busy. Uh, <laughs> That's what their excuse is. <laughs> but they, a spokesperson has come out and said that the um, Russian government is behind the hack in an effort to influence the U.S. election. So do you, do you think the Kremlin has weaponized WikiLeaks to meddle in the U.S. election? Oh, it's, it's, it's highly conceivable. But uh, I think it's a bit rich for Americans to be complaining about a foreign government interfering in their internal affairs <laughs> when the American government has time and again interfered in the internal affairs. I mean, just a few years ago, WikiLeaks revealed that the uh, the United States government was hacking Angela Merkel's mobile. Now, Angela Merkel is, a, is an ally of the United States. It's, it's a NATO ally. So I think that's a bit rich. 
Well, but I also think that um, I, I agree. But those countries in which the U.S. has meddled, there have been factions within those nations that have been able to use that meddling for their own to sort of create an anti-American sentiment that boosted their own political fortunes. And I think that's what you're seeing with the Democrats is that they're using this anti-Russian sentiment okay. um, to sort of pivot off of these hacks. With less than a month to go until Election Day, Donald Trump's standing has plummeted, uh, with likely voters falling from a dead heat just two weeks ago to a double-digit deficit behind Hillary Clinton. So with this in mind, if the election was held tomorrow and the US went to the polls, who would America choose for the next four years? Brendan. I think, you know, things looked sort of very strong for Hillary Clinton. All of the sort of prediction websites like Nate Silver's website have her around 80% likelihood. She's got to be feeling very confident, but there is a history that when Hillary Clinton is in a winning position, uh, she gets ultra cautious and that she's not been good at closing victories. And people who have looked back throughout her political career have written about this quite a lot. Uh, her tendency for control, uh, her tendency to um, be super cautious when ahead isn't maybe always going to be as uh, the, the best approach. Tom, is Trump dead in the water? Yeah, I think all the available evidence indicates that his campaign is imploding and that the Republicans are in a civil war. So that's a safe assumption. I think the Senate uh, probably will go Democrat. And I think the really big issue here is what happens to the House representatives. I mm-hmm. think that the Democrats need to win 30 House seats to regain control of the House of representatives. Now, that is a pretty steep climb. But bear in mind, as I said before, Trump's campaign is imploding and the Republicans are in a civil war. So it's no longer an implausible scenario that the Democrats could get control of the, of the House. And Nicole? That's right. So I think if, you know, if the election were held tomorrow, Clinton would probably win by seven to nine points. And that actually puts her right in the range of tipping the House. Once we get to about seven points, that is about the amount of a lead she would need in order to bring in long enough Democratic seats to flip the House. So if she stays where she is, I I think the race will will tighten up a little bit. I mean, we just don't know what's going to happen in the next several Mm -hmm. months. But if she retains this sort of well above five-point lead, I think Tom's right that uh, it puts the House at risk. Although, to be fair, just to be fair, I mean, every time we write this guy off, he bounces back with tremendous force. So who knows? It's been such a volatile election campaign. Maybe it's not over yet. So polls only forecast what the polls are telling us about November 8 today. Hillary is sitting at a landslide 87.6% and Trump is looking down and out on 12.6%. So that brings us to the close of the fifth episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can head to The Conversation, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks to Tom Switzer, Brendan O'Connor and Nicole Hemmer for helping us make sense of it all this week. And gosh, there was a lot to make sense of. But we'll see you back here next week, counting down the race to the White House. <laughs>